Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. This week, after 20 years, America's longest war came to an end, but by no means smoothly. I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. President Biden has come under heavy criticism for the chaotic way in which the U.S., left Afghanistan. It was a process originally started by his predecessor, Donald Trump. But in defending his decision to follow through, Joe Biden claimed that the United States had succeeded in its original mission. To get the terrorists to attack us on 9-11 and deliver justice to Osama bin Laden and to degrade the terrorist threat to keep Afghanistan from becoming a base from which attacks could be continued against the United States. But last week, there was an attack on the United States, killing 13 military personnel as well as nearly 170 Afghan civilians, calling into question whether the US should really be leaving and what on earth went so wrong between the US intelligence agencies and the White House, leading to such a disastrous end to American occupation. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. Joe Biden might have preferred a more straightforward ending to show the American people, as preparations take place, to mark the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Those attacks, of course, helped kick-start the war in Afghanistan. In the run-up to the September the 11th anniversary, I wanted to speak to one of the men tasked by then-President George W. Bush with finding out what had led to the worst terror attack on American soil in the country's history. Thomas Kane is the former governor of New Jersey, currently chairman of the board of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. He was the joint head of the 9-11 Commission of Inquiry. And so I wanted to get his take on these last two decades and how they've played out. I spoke to him earlier this week via a video chat as he sat in his home in New Jersey. Let's go back to 9-11 itself. Uh, over the last few months, I've spoken to quite a few different people in the United States about different aspects of, of it, but I've always begun by asking them where they were that day and what their memories of that day are. And what are yours? Very clear memories, as we all do. I'd, I'd, I'd had dental surgery the day before, <laughs> and I was holding my aching jaw, 
and the dentist called me. I was at home. And he said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, it's, <laughs> you did your worst, but I think I'm all right. And he said, you know, something strange is happening at the World Trade Center. I think a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. You better turn on the television because you want to see what's happening. And so I turned on the television and kept it on until a second plane came in. And I was a college president at that point. And I had a campus about 45 minutes away from my house. And a lot of our students came from the metropolitan area outside of New York. So my immediate suspicion was, we're going to have kids whose parents were in that building. So I got there and all the phones were out. And so I had to send messages around to the various residence halls. My message was, I'm going to be in the center of campus in the largest building. Come and join me. And we'll talk about this. And was your intuition right that among your students would be people who were bereaved? No, it was a miracle. Uh, in spite of the fact we were so close, uh, we didn't have anybody anybody whose parents were in the building. I mean, I lost a number of friends that day who were in the building, who just were social friends of mine. And uh, everybody else did too. And it was, if you lived where I lived, it's tragic when you went home from work, you passed the commuter stations and you could see the cars still in the parking lots that had never been picked up because those people were never coming home. And, and that kind of you know, that kind of thing you saw day after day as you, as this thing went on. And um, we spent a lot of time grieving in the area I live in. Obviously, as you say, everyone remembers where they were that day. What about the day, and I think it would have been something close to a year later, when you received a phone call from the president, George W. Bush, asking you to take on this task of heading up, along with a Democratic colleague, uh, Lee Hamilton, the Commission of Inquiry. What, what can you tell us about that conversation? Well, it was actually, I got a call the day before from Carl Rove, who was one of the presidential assistants. And he said, we're looking for people who might be interested in commission because Henry Kissinger was the original choice as Senator Mitchell was the original choice for the Democrats. And both of them were running firms. And the Congress basically said, you can't have any conflicts of interest. So they both quit. So Lee and I were second choices, <laughs> we always said. So the call was, could I identify people, possibly? And I said, I'd think about it. And the next day, I got a call from the president's chief of staff. And he said, will you do it? I hesitated for a minute. He said, well, the president will call you tomorrow, but he's with his grandchildren now. And if there's any possibility that you and I can do this, and he'll call you tomorrow, that'd be wonderful for him. I said, I feel like a whole ton of bricks fell on me, but... Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And and you did then get a call from the president formally asking you to do it? Yes, yes. And you said that you felt like a ton of bricks had fallen on you. And I remember hearing what is now quite a famous phone call between President Lyndon Johnson and Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, who had initially refused Lyndon Johnson's request to serve on the Warren Commission, which looked into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, he was trying, Lyndon Johnson, to convince Russell to change his mind. And in the process, he explained how he'd basically blackmailed Earl Warren himself to head the commission, saying to Warren, I'm surprised that you, the Chief Justice of the United States, would turn me down. And he started crying. He said, well, I won't turn you down. I'll just do whatever you say. 
and Warren doesn't want to do it. He thinks that there's no, yes. there's there's nothing in it except grief in taking on such a heavy responsibility. You were being asked, in a way, I don't think anybody would argue this, to take on the biggest inquiry since the Kennedy assassination, at least, if not bigger, given the number of dead. Did you have any hesitation, any nervousness about taking on this mantle? I had a lot of nervousness. But given where I lived, and given the fact I knew a lot of the families who were involved, I didn't think I had the option of saying no. I really didn't, and I, and I thought, and plus when I was brought up maybe a generation ago, but when the President of the United States asks you to do something, you say yes. I've said no to some presidents, but it's things like serving in the cabinet. It's a different thing. <laughs> then you can say no because but this, this, I, I didn't feel responsibly that an American citizen should say no to, to his president when he asks, makes a call of this kind. So, so you take on this task, uh, you very self-deprecatingly and honestly tell us you were the second choice, but you've got this big job because your president's called you to serve. What, what in your mind was the goal uh, of your inquiry uh, in your, uh, as you saw it? Well, it's very clear, and it had been outlined by the United States Congress in the bill that they passed. The, 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 there were two goals, really. One was tell the accurate story of what happened and why it happened. That was step number one. Because there are all sorts of rumors continue to be this day. There's still some conspiracy theories out there. The second thing was make recommendations so you can be sure this never, ever happens again. And did you have the sense that you could, the chips could fall where they may, that you could be fully transparent with whatever you found? Or was there any stage, even later on in the process, a voice that said, mm, actually, Governor Kane, we'd, we'd rather you draw a veil over that. That's a bit awkward. Well, there were people who said that as we went along. I mean, we were dealing with classified information. And some of it we wanted to make public, and there were people in the government who didn't want to make public. But uh, we said, you know, you have to do this job. <laughs> Doing this job requires we make it public. For instance, I thought, and the commission agreed, we had to call the president, and we had to get him to testify because there are all sorts of rumors about what he knew and didn't know. Had he had intelligence that there were planes that might go into the building, a lot of the families thought he had, and that he had ignored it. We had to find out the answer to that question, and a number of other questions. So we insisted, and the president didn't like it, we had to read the presidential daily briefings. Nobody had ever read those before, outside of the president and his staff. We said, we have to see them, because we got to know what the administration knew and when they knew it. And so we were very hard on that. I mean, we fought the administration. We got them. We got them at a very tight circumstance. And I, I was one of four people allowed in a room that was sealed <laughs> all around. And intelligence people standing over our shoulders looking at the briefings. In the end, we got everything that we asked for. Let's get on to the, onto the substance. Um, what exactly, if you had to distill it 20 years on, what exactly did your investigation find in terms of that key question of what the United States could have done better to prevent the September 11 attacks? Well, we found, frankly, so many things. Almost every agency of government had something they could have done better. I mean, certainly the intelligence agencies to start with. I mean, they... 
they didn't talk to each other. Both have information that the FBI and the CIA, had that information been shared, it's very possible the attack could have been prevented. The airlines shouldn't let most of those people on the plane. <laughs> they, had, they had weapons with them, box cutters, but weapons, and they shouldn't have allowed them to plane. The immigration authorities, almost every one of the hijackers, had something wrong with their passport. And, and presidents. <laughs> presidents could have made better decisions. We, we interviewed Bill Clinton for hours, and Bill Clinton, you know, when the beginning stuff happened, the coal attack, the attack on the American embassies, uh, the attempt to track down Osama bin Laden, they could have handled it differently, and it might have different effects. And every single recommendation we made was based on a failure. We made 41 recommendations. I can tell you the failure that was behind each one of those recommendations. And what of those 41 recommendations, what, what for you were the most important? And of the ones that were the most important, have you did you see them materialize? Did they happen? Was your advice followed? Yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't easy. But um, with one exception, every one of the reforms we recommended, all 41 of them, were enacted finally by the Congress. Things like the the reorganization of the FBI and the CIA and the intelligence agencies. That was passed by Congress right away. The forcing of intelligence agencies to share information with each other. That was uh, passed right away. I mean, so the country is a lot safer because of it. You spoke to my Guardian colleague, David Smith, back in May after senators had failed to establish a equivalent commission into the Attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill, instead of 9-11, people talk about 1-6. And that, that failed, that attempt. And you said at the time that it was democracy's loss that that uh, had not been achieved. It, it's clear that the environment is very different now from in 2002, when your commission got to work, uh, and deeply partisan. Do you think in the in the partisan politics of today, do you think there would even have been a, a Thomas Kane-led commission uh, in in today's environment? And if it had happened, would it have been able to publish the report that you published back then? Or would it just be bogged down in partisan disagreement? At the time, Congress did not want us established, the majority of Congress, because we were going into an election year for the presidency. 2004. Yeah. A lot of the congressmen felt that our report could be explosive and could determine the election. So they, um, they had a congressional investigation. But they didn't have the staff, they didn't have the time, they didn't have the money, they didn't have anything to do with profit. So the families of 9-11 recognized that the congressional investigation was a sham because they didn't, weren't, weren't able to do it well and get the facts. And they demanded that, uh, that the investigation go forward with an independent commission. And they were serious. They came down to Washington. They sat in the congressional offices. They picketed the White House. They lay down in the halls. They were not going to be stopped. And I, I refer to those families as the sales we had because they, they, they were always behind it. Even to this day, if I go down and testify before Congress, they'll be a member of the families that accompany me. They have been absolutely incredible and still remain so to this day. The withdrawal from Afghanistan of just 2,500 American soldiers 
was the catalyst for this, the evacuation of tens of thousands of Afghans. What an absolute tragedy for them and a complete humiliation for the Western powers, the Americans and the British in particular. I'm just curious how you have found it, almost personally, watching the events of the last two or three weeks in Afghanistan. I find it tragic. I mean, tragic in every sense of the word. Tragic for the Afghan people, uh, tragic for the United States and what it and allies have done so for so long and tried to do in Afghanistan. Sad for the women of Afghanistan and what their lives are now going to be like. And very hard to explain uh, after 20 years of effort. In my mind, it has to be a gigantic failure of intelligence because I know President Biden pretty well. And if somebody had told President Biden, if we get out on this date, the whole country is going to collapse within a week and a half. I don't believe he would have done it. So to my mind, he had to have faulty intelligence. Originally, this decision for the president and for the United States to withdraw from Afghanistan was a decision that originated in Joe Biden's predecessor's administration, the administration of Donald Trump. And he's used language, President Biden, quite emotional language when explaining the rationale for that decision of his, uh, asking Americans to consider the alternative. How many thousands more Americans' daughters and sons are you willing to risk? How long would you have them stay? Now, when you were first approached to set up a commission to figure out what had gone wrong leading to the September 11 attacks. Did you believe then, because people knew when you were doing that work and people, the United States was already in Afghanistan by the time you were doing that work, did you find it conceivable, would you have found it conceivable that American troops would have still been in Afghanistan nearly 20 years later? No, and I don't think they should have been. <laughs> I mean, it's a... Uh, um... We, we had reason to withdraw a long time before that, and uh, we had a mission. And, and a mission in Afghanistan was to make sure that terrorists didn't use Afghanistan as a staging group for attacks on the West. We, with the help of the Northern Alliance, very early on, had really chased bin Laden out of, out of Afghanistan and across the mountains. And that's the point, I think, at which we should have made our peace and decided we had done the job in Afghanistan. I mean, one criticism uh, that was made of the Commission of Inquiry and its final report was that it hadn't fully got to the bottom of the question of warnings that the intelligence community had passed to the White House. And in particular, there was attention paid uh, to the warning that had gone uh, from George Tenet, then the head of the CIA, to Condoleezza Rice, then the National Security Advisor. And that obviously has a lot of current resonance because there is a question about to what extent was Joe Biden and the Biden White House warned by the intelligence agencies that the Taliban would overrun the Afghan government and do it quickly. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency, but... I always promise the American people that I will be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. Is it your sense that any future inquiry, or just eventually, we will get to the bottom 
of and find a document or a warning like that one from George Tenet to Condi Rice to Joe Biden. And that such a warning could be hugely embarrassing for the Biden administration. There could be, and my hope is that everything comes to light because democracies don't do well in the shadows. I mean, we, our people deserve to know everything. Now, we put everything in our report that we had at the time. You know, over the years, we can learn new things that we didn't know, and they will be added to the facts. And, and, and there are not much, but as of now, I think we don't know enough. We need a commission. I mean, we, we, to me, if you have something in government that works, why not try it again? I mean, we, our commission report worked. Now there's still some conspiracy theories around, this and that. And so, But every time I heard a conspiracy theory, I'd put two or three members of the staff on it. And I'd say, track it down. And if it's true, we'll put it in a report. Let's talk about something that hasn't panned out the way perhaps that you, you and your fellow commissioners would have wanted. And that is the importance of what you called in the report public diplomacy, particularly in the context of Afghanistan. There's quite a lot about Afghanistan in the report. And you said yeah. there that, in, in this is my paraphrase, but you couldn't only rely on hard power. The United States really had to also use soft power uh, 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 and, uh, and fight a sort of cultural and ideological war of persuasion rather than just, as it were, bombs and yeah. bullets in Afghanistan. Is it your sense that Joe Biden has essentially turned his back on that aspect? Well, in fact, the entire mission, but particularly that aspect. And we have here a clip of the president talking about exactly that. We did not go to Afghanistan to nation build. And it's the right and the responsibility of Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country. In a way, he but he hasn't done anything different than his predecessors. We haven't had any president since we wrote the report who's taken that section of the report seriously. Uh, so this is a failure, not just of Joe Biden to me, it's a failure of American policy under presidents of both parties. And I think had we paid attention to that section of the report, I think we'd all be a lot better off. But we didn't. We really didn't. I mean, you could say that, uh, you know, under Obama and actually, I, you know, it may have been other Republican presidents too, that actually there was effort by previous presidents in terms of girls' education, greater enfranchisement of women, uh, that they actually were pushing some of those cultural soft power elements and that they it is under Biden, simply by withdrawing the security of American troops on the ground, that those cultural public diplomacy gains are going to be rolled back. I think in Afghanistan, no question that a lot of people and two or three administrations were pushing good things like the empowerment of women. But I think all of us believe this as a commission had our governments, again, under both parties, uh, push more of those things, we'd be better off as a world. And we'd still recommend it for the future because our power in the West is not just military. You know, and, and, and military may not be the most important part of our power if we use it properly. If you're using a hammer all the time, everything starts to look like a nail. And it's just it's not the way to do it. And as you say, you think that's a problem not just of this or that president, but of policy over the whole period. Since 9-11, has been, that's been a failure, American policy. 
There has been a suicide bombing at Kabul airport. The latest news is ISIS-K, or the Islamic State in the Khorasan, has claimed responsibility for the Kabul attacks. Killed 13 American service members, wounding 18 others. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Let's talk about the immediate conundrum that faces the United States, given the fact there have been terror attacks on American service personnel now in our own time in the last few weeks, that attack on Kabul airport killing 13 American servicemen and women. The former CIA director and former Defence Secretary Leon Panetta has said recently that he thinks there's no getting around it. America is going to have to send troops back in to Afghanistan. Talk potential of a new war in Afghanistan. On the other hand, what Joe Biden seems to favour is a very kind of specific uh, attempts to hunt down specific perpetrators of specific attacks, including by use of drones, which uh, in the last few days, as you and I speak, has ended up with the, the deaths of Afghan civilians, including children. I mean, neither option sounds great, but from your unique vantage point as someone who's looked so deeply into this, which option do you think is likely to leave the United States safer? The Leon Panetta approach of actually sending troops back into war or Joe Biden pulling out but surgically focused remote drone attacks on specific targets as and when they arise? I hope we never send troops in, but it depends on what happens in Afghanistan. We sent troops in the first time because Afghanistan had allowed a terrorist group to use Afghanistan as a base for planning a devastating attack on our homeland. Now, if Afghanistan continues to be a mess, that's the kind of place that attracts terrorists. And if we find that terrorists again are using Afghanistan as a staging place to attack the homeland, we're going to have to send troops back in without a question, because we can't allow that to happen. But if that were to happen, that would really mean the last 20 years had been a terrible failure, wouldn't it? Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Governor Kane, on the podcast, we always like to ask a what else question. And this week's question is not too far away from the topic we've been discussing. At the start of August, nearly 2,000 family members uh, bereaved by the September 11 attacks published a letter urging President Biden not to come to memorial events that are coming up for 9-11 unless he declassifies government documents that they believe will show Saudi Arabian leaders supported the attacks. Of course, as we've been talking about, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Your commission found no evidence um, linking Saudi Arabia directly in terms of funding al-Qaeda. And the Department of Justice, though, has said it would conduct a fresh review of files relating to this, but they stopped short of saying which files might be released to the public. So where, Governor Kane, do you stand on this? Do you think it is time, despite all the inquiring you did, for a closer look into Saudi Arabia's role? Well, first thing I'll say is that I had access, as you know, to almost all the classified documents there were at the time. One thing I'll say, and categorically, three-quarters of those documents that I read that were classified should never have been classified. Were things the American public has every right to know 
But having said that, for all the documents I read, including the ones the families now want made public, I did not find anything that would indicate any implication involvement by Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia government officials. Now, whether or not there were citizens of Saudi Arabia involved at one point or other, I can't say, but, you know, I'm close to the families. I get along well with them, but I, I'll tell you, I don't think they're going to get anything. I found more information of possible involvement by Iran than it of Saudi Arabia. Similarly, actually, you found more linking the attacks to Iran than you did to Iraq. That's right. And yet the country was at war with Iraq, with Iraq in just even while as your report was being prepared. Yeah, 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 we found nothing again. We found nothing, nothing involving Iraq at all. Governor Thomas Kane, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time for Politics Weekly Extra. Thank you. It's great to talk with you. And that is all from me for this week. Next week, our sister podcast, Today in Focus, will be looking at various aspects of the impact, the legacy of 9-11, including the children of 9-11 and the rise of Islamophobia. So do look out for those editions of the podcast. And of course, I'll be back next Friday. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer this week was Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please do stay safe out there. And thanks, as always for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.